If you want to, go ahead and open your Bibles, and you can just open them to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Of course, we're continuing our study of these various theological terms. If you remember, uh, and if you, if you, if you, if you've got the second, if you want to flip back to the end of lesson 10, end of lesson 10 is a number of theological terms. Somebody flip back there and I might just come walk down with you. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be on blue paper, of course. End of lesson 10, and it's those theological terms. And if you remember the terms, we've looked at re- reconciliation and sin and spiritual death and redemption and there's atonement and expiation and all those terms, and we're getting all of those. And by, before the semester is over, in other words, we've got lessons 12 tonight, 13 and 14, we'll have completed all of the theological terms. And it's very important that you know those because they're in the Bible. That When I say theological, most of them are actual biblical words that you'll find, and people sometimes don't know what they mean. So sometimes they read the Bible and they go, I don't, you know, he's the propitiation, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. A lot of people just say, I have no idea what propitiation means. So if they don't know what that means, how are they going to know what the verse means? So that's one reason we're going through those. The word tonight, or the uh, the theological term tonight is the word atonement. And I'm going to show you there's two different ways to look at this. And if you also remember that, uh, in fact, we can put it this way. Uh, if you look at your handout, it says, we continue seeing the various theological terms connected with the doctrine of salvation. Now, here's the thing about salvation that we've seen over and over. Let me get up to get it caught up to where we are. Okay, the first thing is that salvation is so simple, what? that a child can understand. Salvation is so simple that a child can understand. There are some of you in this room who may have trusted Christ when you were five or six years old. Uh, both of my girls trusted Jesus when they were six. Uh, I, I think Tyler, remember, everybody remembers Tyler? Tyler, uh, I think he was, how old was he, five or four? I mean, when he trusted Christ, he was so young. And, and, and then some of us were like me. I didn't get it until I was 19, and I still wasn't sure I got it. But anyway, the, the bottom line is salvation is so simple that believing, that understanding that Jesus is the Savior and that he offers eternal life and whoever believes has eternal life. It's so simple that a child can understand it, but at the same time, it's so complex. We'll spend, we'll study it for the rest of our lives. And that's one thing of looking at terms like substitution and reconciliation and redemption and atonement and propitiation and all those kind of words that are there. It's so good that we try to understand those words. And so what we did, if you remember, the big overarching word that hits all all of this is the word reconciliation. And that's what we said. We put down and said reconciliation is just uh, a bringing back together. It's basically the idea that God brings man back to himself. We said reconciliation in the Bible is how the perfect God who loves us. And let me, in fact, let me just do it this way. We, we've seen it many, many times. But here's, here's the perfect God who brings sinful man back to himself using his son, Jesus Christ. That's really the story of the Bible. That's the story of reconciliation. God brings man to himself. And we talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18, 19, and 20, that's where you see in the Bible probably the, the best aspect of reconciliation. And uh, just remember that God, God has a plan of reconciliation to bring us back to himself. And there's a number of pictures. Last time, we, we've already looked at several things, but last time we looked at the word redemption. And we started off by saying that redemption just means to purchase by paying a price. That's what it means. We talked about if you're old enough, most of you aren't old enough to remember S&H Green Stamps. Some of you do. Anybody in here do besides Charlene and, and Kevin? <laughs> S&H Green Stamps, you go to the grocery store and you buy groceries and according to based on how much you spent, stamps would come out. 
and you, they gave you a thing of stamps. Then you had little books, and you'd put up, you'd glue them into the books. And when you got a book finished, okay, you, you got more books, and then you go to the redemption center, where they had all kind of things, clothes, lamps, furniture, sports stuff, and you'd walk in, and it might say this lamp might be six and a half books. And so you, if you'd saved your stamps, you could redeem it. So redeem means to purchase by paying a price. And we talked about that. And even on the quiz this time, we talked about redemption. And when we talk about, by the way, that's the, the reconciliation. Perfect God brings sinful man back to himself. Redemption, we said there were three aspects of redemption. So on your handout, you see them. First of all, we're redeemed from the slave market of sin. We were all dead in trespasses and sins. We're slaves. The Bible uses the idea of redemption because at the time that Paul Paul was writing, and the time that they were talking about redemption, uh, half the known world were slaves. The Romans had a lot of slaves, and they would they would redeem or purchase or buy a slave. We said that we're redeemed. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the slave market of sin. We're redeemed how? By the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. He shed his blood as the payment. We're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, First, you know, First Peter. And then we're redeemed and set free to serve. Now, when we say set free to serve, that doesn't mean we, we still belong to Jesus Christ because he purchased us. He said, what do you not know? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit is in you. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body. So when we think about redemption, and that's what we saw last time, we're redeemed from the slave market of sin by the blood of the Lamb, and we're redeemed and set free to serve. So that's powerful, powerful stuff. Now, tonight, we're going to go and we're looking at atonement. Now, it may surprise you that when you looked at the chart, at the listing of, of those theological terms, atonement is the only one that doesn't really have a verse by it. And the idea and the reason we talked about that is you have to understand atonement is, is a, we'll look at it this way. The biblical concept of atonement, let me do it, is not found, is, is found in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. Just think about that. The, the, rise of the concept of atonement is found in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. And so I want you to see it because the word atonement, in fact, I think I've got it right here. The word atonement literally means to cover over. We all know about the Day of Atonement. They call Yom Kippur. Yom means day. Kippur means covering. In the Old Testament, there was a day that the Jewish people covered their sins. They offered sacrifices and covered their sins. Every time that you sinned in the Old Testament, every time that a person sinned under the Mosaic Law, and they would bring a sacrifice, it didn't pay for sin at all. What did it do? It covered sin. So when we talk about atonement, now it's a biblical term. It's also a theological term. Let me explain something to you. Okay, the biblical term atonement means covering. So if I said to you, what does the Bible mean when it says atonement? You would say it means covering, okay? Theologically, when people use the word, and I'm talking about Bible teachers, Bible scholars, people who write those books, they use the word atonement to mean payment. They do. They'll say the atonement of Jesus Christ. And what they're talking about is the payment that Jesus Christ made. So let me say it this way. If you're talking from a biblical view, atonement means covering. If you're talking from a theological view, 
Atonement can mean the idea of payment. John Walbert, I've got a quote from John Walbert. John Walbert, when he was the president of Dow Seminary, he said this, The word atonement is frequently used as an all-inclusive term for the payment of Jesus Christ. Now, when, we, when I say the word atonement, I don't want you to think at this point theologically. I want you to think biblically. So what does atonement mean? Covering. Now, we're going to talk about it theologically also because we're going to see how it fits together and then we're going to see why people use it that way. Some, some people do it that way. So as we look at this, we're going to look at... Uh, so the, the Hebrew word for... Uh, the word kapur, yom kapur, means the covering. So it means to cover over by legal rights. It does not mean payment. So whenever you see the idea of atonement... Now, some translations, I'm going to say it this way, some biblical translations will take and they'll, they'll put the word atonement in there and they're using it for payment. So that's why it's a little bit confusing sometimes when you see the word atonement and that we immediately ought to think covering and then we won't think payment, but we'll talk about how it fits together in just a minute. Here's what we're going to do in our study tonight. We're going to look at three different aspects of atonement, okay? First of all, we're going to see the Old Testament covering, okay? Because the Old Testament covering, uh, God let them what? Cover their sins until Jesus would come and do what? Pay for sin, okay? Then we're going to see the New Testament, the fulfillment in Christ. And then we're going to stop and look at the different views of what we call limited and unlimited atonement. And that's when we're going to start talking about theologically, Okay, so right now we're talking biblically, and we're going to talk theologically in just a minute. So we'll see how it fits together. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to see the Old Testament uh, aspect of atonement. And we're going to see in Leviticus, now watch this, look up here for just a second. In Leviticus 16, and let me put this, turn a page here. In Leviticus 16, we're going to see that the atonement, Yom Kippur, actually covered the sin of the nation. Did not pay for the sin of the nation. You understand, from Adam and Eve, all the way up to Jesus Christ, no sins were ever paid for. Everything had been covered. And under the Mosaic Law, it was a principle. It was something that was taught so that people would understand there was a covering, waiting for the Lamb of God who would do what? Take away the sin of the world, pay for sin. So Leviticus chapter 16, and I want you to think about this. I'm going to, I've got it right here, I want you to hear it, but I want you to see it. On the Day of Atonement, now there was all kind of feasts. There was uh, the Passover on the 14th day of the first month, and there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then there was the, the, the Feast of first fruits, and then there was the Feast of Pentecost, and then there was the Trumpets, and then there was a day called the Day of Atonement. It was the 10th day of the seventh month on the Jewish calendar. And the tenth day of the seventh month was the Day of Atonement, and it was the only feast that they weren't happy. In fact, they afflicted their souls because on the Day of Atonement was the day that the sin of individuals and the nation were going to be covered again. And that what they were hoping was, it'll be covered again. And so here's what would happen. Let me tell you, and we're going to read it in just a second. The high priest would come out and there's some debate on whether he came out already dressed or he came out and there's some that tell that there was like a, like, a, like a curtain or a sheet and he would go behind the sheet. He took off his normal robes and he put on a white 
robe, a simple white robe. Then they took the curtain away, and there he is standing there. Okay. Then he would, in front of all the people, he would take a bull, and he'd bring the bull up, and he would put his hands on the bull, and this bull is fixing to be sacrificed for the priest and his family. And he'd cut the throat of that bull, and they had these pans, and they'd put the pan there, and they'd catch the blood of the bull. Then he would take it, and he would go, and let me erase it. Let me just show you this. This is out front. This is the big altar. He kills the bull out here, and he takes the blood. He takes the blood, and he goes into the first room, which is called the holy place. And this is called the Holy of Holies, and back there is the Ark of the Covenant. As you know, priest, no, priest could go, certain priests could go in the front room because there was the lampstand, there was the showbread, and there was an altar of incense. They could go in there, and they went in there every day, kept the light, lamps burning, put bread in there once a week, kept the altar of incense going. High priest is the only one that could ever go into this room, and the only day he could go into this room was the Day of Atonement. So picture him out front, kills the bull, catches the blood in the pan. He's got the pan with blood in it. This is for him. He goes into the front room. He goes to the altar of incense, and he make, the altar of incense has got smoke coming up. He takes some coals off the altar of incense and puts it behind this curtain. And the back room fills up with smoke. It says that if he went in there without the smoke of the altar of incense, he would die. So he's standing there, and he's waiting the room to be filled. And then he goes into this room. And this is the only time once a year he goes in. He goes in, he takes the blood, he sprinkles it on the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, there's the two angel things, the two cherubim, and the flat thing which is made out of gold, and then the box which is made out of wood and gold. And he sprinkles the blood covering his sin and his family's sin. Then he comes out. People are all out here, and they're watching, and they're hoping, I hope he comes out. All right, okay? He comes out. And now there are two goats, two goats. And one goat is called the goat for the Lord, and the other goat is called a scapegoat. And they bring the one for the Lord, and the priest, high priest puts his hands on that goat, and this goat is for all the people. And he takes the knife, and he cuts the throat, and they put the pan down, and the blood comes down. And then guess what he does? He goes back in. Make sure the incense is in there, goes in the back room, takes the blood, sprinkles it out there, and he's covering the sins of the people, the nation. Then he comes back out, comes back out, and there's the other goat there. It's called the what? Scapegoat. It's got a little ribbon on, it, on the horn so they can know which one it is. And the, a person who is selected comes, takes the goat, and leads the goat out into the wilderness, never to return. The goat's never to return. The person returns, not the goat. And that is symbolic of the sins that are covered, that are taken away. And the people are all breathing a sigh of relief because now, for the year, the sins of the nation and the people are covered. Okay, That's the day 
of atonement. Now let's read it. So look at your Bibles in Leviticus chapter 16. Look at verse 6. And here's the priest. And it's going to tell you what he's going to do, okay? It says this. And then Aaron, this is the high priest, shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, the bull for himself, that he may make atonement. What does atonement mean? Covering for himself and his household. He shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the meeting. Aaron shall cast lot for the goats, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for the what? Scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it an offering. But the goat on which the lot of the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So he just explained to us what he's going to do. Then, now, he's going to do it. Watch, verse 11. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement covering for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. Okay, that's him doing it, right? What's he supposed to do? He says, he shall take a fire pan full of coals from the fire from upon the altar before the law, the Lord, two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil. So remember, he's got the pan. He goes here. He gets the coals. He puts them behind the curtain. That's what it says. Basically, he says, he puts them inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, what will happen? He will die. And then, so this is what he's doing. And then, and then it goes on and says, Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull, sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now think about that. He's got to do everything just right. Think how many times he read this to make sure. Okay, was it seven times or six times? Was it eight times? Oh my gosh. One, two, you know. So would somebody read that? Was it seven times or eight? I mean, think about it. You had to have this stuff memorized. You did not make a mistake. Listen, what if you made a mistake? Do you remember Nadab, Nadab and Abihu? You know who they were? They were Aaron's two sons. They took fire from the wrong place and offered it, and they died just like that. So if you're the high priest, you may say, huh? This is a big deal for me. I get to do this. You also risk your life to do it. The tradition is, now we, it doesn't say anything about it in the Bible, but tradition is that they actually tied a rope around the priest's leg when he went into the back room. Just in case he died, they could drag the body out. That's tradition. It's not, it doesn't say it in the Scripture, does it? But what is he doing now? So he, he goes in there, he slaughters, uh, he takes some of the blood and sprinkles it, and he does it seven times. So now that's, that's the first one. Now watch, look at the next one, verse 15. He, then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring his blood inside the veil, and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and in front of the mercy seat. And then watch what it says. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sin. And thus he shall do for the tent of the meeting which abides in the midst of the impurities. This was the tent of the meeting. And so he basically is purifying the people. That's his plan. And then notice what it goes on to say uh, a little bit further down. Go all the way down to uh, uh, verse 20. It says, When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. 
Remember, he's already killed the other one. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over the iniquities of the sons of Israel and their transgressions regarding their sins. He shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands ready. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. And then it says, Aaron shall come into the tent of the meeting, take off the linen garments which he'd put on when he went into the holy place, and leave them there. So, on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Now, this is, this is a huge day. This is a huge day. What, what do Jewish people do now on the Day of Atonement? There's no temple. There's no place to offer sacrifice. Do you know what they do? I have some friends that are Jewish. You know what they do? They meet, they kill a chicken, and they swing the chicken above their head a certain number of times. And they hope and say that this will cover their sin. If you ask them, well, how can you do this? And they say, well, there's no temple, so we don't have a place to do it. There's a reason there's no temple, because there's been a final sacrifice for sin. That's why. But we'll talk about it more. Okay, so if you just want to look at this right here, this is on the Old Testament aspect, the high priest work on that Day of Atonement, and I think it's in your, let's see. Yeah, it's there. I got it at the top of the page where it says, the high priest work on the Day of Atonement. He sacrificed what? The bull for himself and his family. And then he sacrificed what? Two goats. One goat was sacrificed for the sins of the people. And then the scapegoat was released in the wilderness to remove sin. Now, let me tell you, is this incredible? Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine what it would be like to watch the high priest kill that bull and that blood come out and they kiss that blood in that pan and then he disappears into that place and you don't know whether he's going to come out or not. He doesn't know whether he's going to come out or not. And then he does the same thing for the people. And so when he does that and he comes out and it's all over, the people can say, guess what? Our sins are covered. Let me tell you something. If you lived... In Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, and you came out of your house at 9 o'clock in the morning, and you thought a bad thought, and then you should have done something and you didn't do it, and you lied to somebody because they asked you something, and you, have you done what? What have you done? You've sinned. What are you supposed to do? Well, but you, you're going you're gonna to get on a donkey? And you're going to ride uh, eight or nine hours, maybe, maybe ten hours if you have travel fast, to get to the temple and get to the temple and go up to the temple and say, you know, I lied to my neighbor, so I've got to offer the sacrifice. And so they offer the sacrifice that covers your sin. And then, or, and then you get back on your donkey, and then halfway there, you hit your leg against something, and you say a bad word, and then you, and you go, I've got, got to turn around and go back, right? What did a person do when they sinned in Nazareth? You know what they knew? Their sins were what? They were covered on the Day of Atonement. That's why all Jewish men had to come. They had, all Jewish men had to come to the Jerusalem three times a year. One of them is the Day of Atonement. They had to come at Passover time. They had to come at Pentecost time. And they had to come at uh, Day of Atonement time. But this was to deal with the sins of the nation. So in reality, on the Day of Atonement, the nation of Israel could go, whew, you know, it's sort of like when we sin and we confess our sin, we can do what? We can say, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And we go, Whew, I'm glad that's all with, right? 
Okay, so that's what they, that's what they had to do. So now what's neat is to think about this. Uh, the, the, and, and I want you to think about the, the two goats. One goat dies and then one goat lives. There, it's a picture of death and resurrection. But see, an animal can't die and rise again. See, that takes two of them. One dies, the other one lives and takes the sin away. It's a picture of death and resurrection. Now, the second thing we want to look at there is the New Testament fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I want you to think about this. So let's go back and think about it. Hebrews 10, I want you to turn there. Just flip over because the book of Hebrews is powerful. It has so much great stuff in it. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. I'll give everybody time to get there. Now, if you're Jewish, under the law, law of Moses, this is how you dealt with sin. You covered it. But there's a promise. The promise is the seed of woman, Genesis 3.15, is going to crush the head of serpent. And Genesis 12, 1, 2, 3, there would be a Messiah, there'd be someone come who would bless the whole world. And, and so the idea that there's a Messiah or a Savior coming who won't just cover sin, but who will what? Pay for sin. So let's think about it. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. He says, For the law, it was just a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offered year by year, make perfect those who draw near. And he says, The sacrifices offered every year, day of atonement, can never pay, away, pay for sin. They can't. In fact, the law is just a shadow. The law was a foreshadow of who? Who is the, the high priest on the day of atonement covered everybody's sins, right? Who is the great high priest? Who's the great high priest? Jesus Christ. He's going to come and pay for everybody's sins. That's going to be the difference. So Hebrews 10, when the sacrifice is offered every year, he says, he says that they could never, by the same sacrifices offered year by year, Make anyone perfect. I mean, they couldn't. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 3 and 4, says, Every year they were reminded they were sinners. Listen, every time the priest went in this thing, what did everybody think about? Their sin. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Notice verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Let me ask you a question. Why? Why? Why is it impossible for an animal sacrifice to take away sin? Huh? It, it, it can't, it's not satisfactory, but why isn't it? Huh? It's not human. Listen, the blood of an animal can't pay for the sin of a person. God said the blood of an animal can cover the sin of a person, but it can't pay for a sin. The only sacrifice that can pay for a person's sin is another person. If you ask the question to everybody, does God want human sacrifice? What's the answer? We'd all say no, but the answer is yes. The only sacrifice that, he can, that satisfies him is the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Because the blood of a human being is the only blood that can pay for human being's sins. And it's got to be a perfect human being, and there's only one. 
and that's Jesus Christ. So the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And that's, that's the key. So what do we know? We know that there's in the Old Testament in Isaiah, it said there was going to be a Messiah who would come and pay for the sins of all people. Listen to this. This is Isaiah 53. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was pierced through for what? Our what? Our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He will justify. He will bear their iniquities. That's, that's what those verses say. So the Old Testament said there's one coming who's going to do what? Not cover sin, but what? Pay for sin. And who is that? John 29, he saw Jesus walking by, and he said, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who would take away, not cover, the sins of the world. John called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, you see this foreshadow? The atonement in the Old Testament is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ coming to pay for sin. He is the final. And, and, and let me, you're at Hebrews Look at Hebrews 10. Look at verse 10. It says, but, uh, by, but 10, 12. He says, but he, after offering one sacrifice for sin for all time, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 10, 12. He has made the perfect and final sacrifice. Now, I'm going to show you something. If you've never seen this before, you're going to be amazed. If you've never seen it before. We've already said that in the Old Testament... What did the high priest do? He took, he took the blood of a bull and goat, and he went into the holy place. Where was this holy place? It was in Jerusalem, wasn't it? Was it on this earth? And he went in there and covered sin. Now, Jesus is our what? Great high priest. Now, let me ask you a question. Could Jesus have gone into the temple and offered sacrifices? Uh -uh. He's God, though. Can he do anything? No, he can't. Because who only had the right to offer sacrifices at the temple? The Levites and the, and the high priest and the, and the priest, and the priests were from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was what, from what tribe? Judah. So Jesus was not an earthly priest. He was not an earthly priest. These are earthly priests. He is what kind of priest? Now let me show you something. If you've never seen this, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Now, on the Day of Atonement, what did the priest do? Went into the holy place and poured out the blood of bulls and goats and covered sin. Watch Jesus, our great high priest. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not, that is to say, not part of this creation. Wait a minute. Jesus went into a tabernacle. This is an earthly tabernacle. What does that mean? There must be a what? A heavenly tabernacle. Because the one Jesus went into was not made with what? 
hands. Notice what it says. And not through the, verse 12, and not through the blood of, bull, of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Where did Jesus go? Where did it say? He entered through the holy place. What holy place? What holy place? What? Yeah, but what holy place? In heaven. You understand there is a holy place like this, the one that was on the earth that Moses made that had the front room and the back room and the lampstands and all this. Do you understand that the pattern that Moses had to build that was based off one in heaven? And we go, are you kidding me? No, no, I'm not kidding you. Earthly priest went into this one. Heavenly priest, Jesus Christ, went into this one. Now notice what it says, and I'll read it again. When Christ appeared as a high priest of a good things to come, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not part of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer could cleanse people, <coughs> basically set them apart, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. <coughs> so, do you understand that we don't know when this happened, but when Jesus died on the cross, whether it was while he was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, while it was sometime when he walked on the earth for 40 days, whether it was sometime after that, we, all we know is that at a point in time, Jesus Christ went into the heavenly tabernacle and poured out his blood as the payment for sin. The high priest on the earth poured out blood of bulls and goats to cover sin. Jesus poured out his blood in this place to pay for sin. And there's some people might say, and they'll never forget it. You realize what he did? He went into a place in the heavens and poured out his blood. We have no idea when he did it. Some people say, well, maybe, maybe he did it uh, right after he said it is finished, somehow he did that. Or maybe he did it while he was, you know, the three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Or maybe he did it in that 40-day time period when he walked on the earth. Or maybe he did it after he ascended into heaven. We, we don't know. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that he did it. And so it is so powerful. Okay, have you got that? Is that incredible? That, I mean, that's, that is out of this world, okay? So now, with that in mind, We've seen all the biblical stuff. And now we've got to stop and we've got to look at theological stuff because when you read books, when you hear people talk about atonement, they're going to use the word atonement in a theological ring to mean payment. So let's stop for a minute and let's talk about payment. Did Jesus pay for sin? Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, do we agree on that, right? That when Jesus went on the cross, he died on the cross to do what? To pay for sin. And so with that in mind, we're going to talk about views of the atonement. And this, we're using it theologically. Two views of the payment for sin, the theological view, the payment. And there are two views. One is called limited atonement. The other is called unlimited atonement. 
So I want you to think about that as we, and write that down. Limited atonement is this, that when Jesus died on the cross, he did not pay for the sins of everybody. He paid for sins of certain people. In fact, it was the people, ultimately, we might say, who believe, okay? So he paid for those who believe. If you didn't believe, if you don't believe, then he didn't pay for your sins, okay? That's called limited atonement, okay? The second view is what we call unlimited atonement, and that is that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of all people, whether they're believers or unbelievers. They paid for the sins of all people. Now, our world is divided a little bit. Uh, it's not divided because of the Bible, because the Bible is very clear. It's divided because of theology. And there are some people who say, well, Jesus couldn't have paid for everybody's sins or everybody would be what? Saved. They have a wrong view. They don't understand that. And then there are people like us who say Jesus paid for everybody's sin because the Bible says he's the satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. So I want you to stop and think for a minute. They are you're going to read things and people will talk about limited atonement, which means Jesus only died for those who believe, or unlimited atonement, which means Jesus died for everybody. And so with that in mind, let's talk about it. Let's explain it for a second. Limited atonement. Jesus only died for certain ones. Now, let me, let me just be really upfront with you so you can grasp this, and we're going to see a little bit more later. There's some who believe that God picked certain people, to be saved. So he picked them and he paid for their sins and so they get salvation. That's called limited atonement. Jesus only died for certain ones, those who believe. And the payment, he, they believe that when Jesus paid for sin, payment for sin equals what? Equals what? Salvation. So if he paid for your sin, you're saved. And if he didn't pay for your sin, you're not saved. And if you, if you were to say, well, Jesus paid for everybody's sins, they'd say it's not possible because the payment for sin equals salvation, so everybody, everybody would be saved. Now, they're wrong, but I'm just trying to show you what they hold to. Okay? Unlimited atonement, which is what we believe. I'll just throw that out. Jesus paid for everyone's sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the world. And I want you to understand something. Payment for sin does not equal salvation. And let me show you just a few things, just so you can think about this. Salvation comes by what? By not the payment of sin. The Bible doesn't say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever has the payment for sin will never perish, but have everlasting life. It says whosoever will what? Believe. Now let me ask you this, and I want you to just think a minute. Old Testament, New Testament. Is this, can this, is, you think this part right here is picked up on the camera? It is, isn't it? It is. Okay. In the Old Testament, how many sins were paid for? None. Were people saved in the Old Testament? Huh? Were they saved in the Old Testament? How were they saved? By what? Faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. David believed it was counted to him for righteousness. Daniel believed. So salvation in the Old Testament comes by what? Faith and not payment for sin. In the New Testament, are there any, how many sins are paid for? 
All of them. Is everybody saved? No, why does salvation come by what? Faith. Whoever believes. And so the issue isn't payment of sin. Payment of sin makes it possible for God to save people because he removes the sin barrier. But salvation has always been and will always be how? By faith. So just understand that. Now, so, limited atonement believes that he only died for those he picked out and the payment of sin is salvation. We believe Jesus died for everybody's sins and that salvation doesn't come by the payment of sin. It comes simply by faith. Now let me show you some things. We've got some more verses to, to look at. 1 John 2, 2. What does that say? He is the satisfactory payment not for our sins only, but for the sins of the what? Entire world. Did he pay for the sins of the entire world? Okay. Now, so if he paid for the sins of the entire world, if the payment for sin equals salvation, who all saved? Everybody. But payment for sin does not equal salvation. I look at this right here. The word world is cosmos. And it means the entire inhabited world. It always refers to all people. Okay? All people. Look at this one. John 3.16. God so loved the what? The word world is cosmos. That he gave his only begotten son. Right? He gave his son. Let me go back. Gave his son to die for us and to pay for our sins. God did not send the son into the world to do what? John 3.17, God did not send the Son in the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Did Jesus Christ come and die and pay for the sins of every person? Is salvation by the payment of sin or is it by faith? It's by faith. I want you to understand that. So when we talk to people and they say they believe in limited atonement because God picked certain people to be saved and he died and paid for their sins. And if he paid for everybody's sins, everybody would be saved. We have to say, listen, payment for sin does not equal salvation. You're not saved because you got the payment of sin. You're saved by faith. Old Testament, New Testament. Does this make sense? Okay, I want you, I want you to get it because it is powerful. Look at this one. Hebrews 2.9. He tasted death for who? Every person. Jesus died for every person. Okay, I'm going to read some verses to you. You don't have to, you don't have to turn to them. John 1, 29, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, the world. Okay, listen to this. I'm just going to read a few verses for you. I'll tell you what they are. That was uh, John 1, 29. Here is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, but listen to what it says. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God, one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a payment for all. Did he die for all people? Did he make the payment for all people? Yes, he did. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, listen to this. This will surprise you. For this we labor and strive, we fix our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. How is he the Savior of all men? Because he's paid for the sin of everybody. But he's the Savior, especially of those who do what? Believe. You have to believe. So, the problems with limited atonement. I want you to see this. Okay. Uh, oh, by the way. 
Uh, in Hebrews 10, 12, it says, after he offered that final sacrifice for sin forever, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's the problem with limited atonement? First of all, you can't proclaim to people that Jesus died for them. Listen, if Jesus Christ and God picked out certain people to be saved, and we don't know who they are, right? Can you go up to somebody and say, look, I've got good news for you. God so loved you that he sent his son to die for you. Can you say that to them? You can't because you don't know if Jesus died for them or not. And the second issue is that it equates the payment of sin with salvation. And one of the things we know is the payment for sin does not equal salvation. Okay? So atonement, we could put it this way, is the final covering or payment, if you want to use it in the other way, by Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. Okay. So have we got it? Do we understand it? Now, i got one other thing, and I can do it in the next 10 minutes, and I'm going to do it really fast. Here's our verses, by the way. And he, is, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the entire world. That's First John 2, 2. And then John 1, 12. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even those who do what? Believe in his name. How do you become a child of God? By faith. You don't become a child of God because he paid for your sins. Let me ask you this question quickly. Did Jesus Christ pay for the sins of every human being? So... So he died for everybody? Right. So how is a person saved? By faith. Okay, just grasp that. Now, there's one thing, if you notice, in that handout, let me look at this and see. Does it say something like optional? The next page? Okay, I wanted you to... I, I, what I'm thinking about doing when I do this study is leave this optional for some people who want to go into this and some people who don't. We're going to go into it because we want it on the film and, and, and we want you to look at it. I want to give you a contrast between what we call the whole limited atonement and reformed theology. Now, I'm just going to throw this out. There is a teaching that is all over, and a lot of it's in this town, and it's all over. It's called reformed theology. It goes all the way back to the Reformation. That's why they called it reformed theology. It goes back to John Calvin, and it's sometimes called Calvinism. And it is a view. It is not, I'm going to say it nicely, it's not biblical. It's not based off the Bible. It's based off a, a, a kind of a, a thought process, a, a system of theology that is made up. And uh, I call it the problem of there, there's a There's an acronym called the TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. And that stands for the five aspects of what they consider Reformed theology. So you can just put that down real quickly. And what I want you to see is that Reformed theology, and I'm going to say it in a nice way, says this. Here is God. Here is, and I'm going to make it really simple. I'm going to say that God created ten people. And that God created ten people. He created ten people who do not who do not have the ability to believe. In fact, they're dead. They're spiritually dead. But in Reformed theology, spiritually dead means you can't believe, you can't even respond to God. So you're unable to believe, you can't respond to God. They call unbelievers a corpse. So... God created people without the ability to believe, and then he picked some of them, and he said, I'm picking these. I'm going to uh, 
make them alive. I'm going to die for them. I'm going to pay for their sins on the cross. I'm going to bring them to myself. And then they will serve me. Now here's the deal. So that means these four who are unable to believe, he makes them spiritually alive, makes them believe, dies for them, brings them to himself, and serves him. These are called the elect. What about these others right here? Now these go, and these get to go, well, let's just put it in terms everybody uses. These get to go to heaven. What about these six right here that he created that do not have the ability to believe, that can't respond to him? He didn't choose them. He didn't make them alive. He didn't bring them to himself. He didn't make them serve him. Where are they going to go? They're going to go, where? Where? To hell. Is that right? You agree with that or not agree with that? I mean, this is their system, right? Okay, now let me ask you something. What must a person do in order not to go to hell? Believe in Jesus Christ. But they're not capable of believing in Jesus Christ. So in the view of Reformed theology, God creates people without the ability to believe and then sends them to hell because they haven't believed. Do you understand that? I'm just giving it to you right on. And I don't care who watches the tape. I don't care what. I don't care how many bad letters I get. I hate Reformed theology because it limits the work of Christ, has no assurance of salvation. Okay? This is a philosophy. This is not biblical. Now, so what I've got for you is these things, and I want you to see them. The first one is, what is total depravity? In their minds, total depravity is a person is dead and cannot believe unless God regenerates them first. Now, we all say that when you believe in Jesus, you're what? Born again, right? That's regeneration. They say God regenerates you before you believe. So he has to regenerate them to make them alive. And then they, they believe. They believe because he makes them believe. Okay, that is wrong. That's incorrect. The correct view is that God, man is dead in sin. And when he believes, because unbelievers are capable of believing. Now let me ask you a question. Reformed theology says unbelievers can't believe. Unbelievers can't respond to God. Can unbelievers believe? Okay, let me, let me just give you several verses right here, okay? I want you to think about this just for a second. In Luke 8, 12, just write down Luke 8, 12. Do you remember the parable? The parable of the sower, and he throws the seed out, and it lands on the hard ground, and the bird comes and eats it? In Luke 8, 12, that hard ground is the unbeliever, and it says that the devil comes and takes away the message, so they will not, what? Believe. Listen, if they can't believe, why does he have to take the message away? Can an unbeliever respond to God? They say no. How about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Cornelius is not a believer, and he's praying to God, and God sends an angel to him and says, Your prayers have come up to me. Send for Peter, and I will tell you how you can have eternal life. You can be saved. Can an unbeliever respond to God? Yes. Can an unbeliever is an unbeliever regenerated before they believe? No, they believe and then they're regenerated. Can an unbeliever believe? The answer is 
Yes. Okay? So the first view of total depravity, they need to rename that instead of total depravity because we're all deprived and and depraved because we're all sinful and fall short of God's glory. They need to call that total inability because they think that people do not have the ability to believe. So I don't think, let me show you something. I don't think God picked four people out of ten or six people out of ten. I don't think he picked any of those. I think every person has the opportunity to believe. And that's why when man is dead in sin, but when he believes in Christ, he's regenerated. Okay, here's the second thing. First, by the way, 1 John 5, 1 says, whoever believes is born again. It doesn't say whoever is born again believes. Just remember that. 1 John 5, 1. The second view is unconditional election that God picked certain ones. And they say that God chose some for salvation and brings them to himself. Now, if that's true, what about the ones he didn't pick? Let me ask you a question. Aren't you, how many of us in this room have believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life? So thank the Lord. We got picked, didn't we? How do you know if you got picked? You don't know. Yeah, when you die. And maybe, maybe. Wait, yeah, when you're either in hell or heaven, you go, oh, I thought I was picked. No, okay. All right. So it, uh, unconditional election, that's called double predestination. Because if you pick these, what happens to these? You don't pick them. If you pick these, you got life. If you don't pick these, they got hell. It's called double predestination. And that's what it is. The next thing is the correct view is that God has chosen the entire world and sent his son to pay for the sins of all mankind and those who ever believe receive eternal life. God so loved the what? The world. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So I just want you to understand that. God does not want any... Remember this verse? He... He does not want anyone to, to uh, let me get the right verse. Here we go. He desires all men to be saved. Now, let me ask you something. In this view, did he desire all men to be saved? He, he only wanted these four to be saved. I just want you to grasp it. Okay? Then how about limited atonement? We've already seen limited atonement. Jesus died. They say he died only for those he chose. We say that Jesus died for the entire world. And we already know that. We've seen that. First John 2, 2. Anybody got that one? You don't have to write down everything. Am I going too fast? A little bit? Okay. We're just, I don't want to spend too much time on this and make, make the whole world mad. Huh? What was the verse you read? Oh, the same one, though. First Timothy uh, 2, 4 through 6. Okay. Now, here's another one. And it's called irresistible grace. This is the I. And that means that when God makes you alive, chooses you, dies for you, he brings you to himself, and you have to come. Whenever he, it's called irresistible grace, if God brings you to himself, you're going to have to believe. Now that's wrong as well. Why? Because God convicts the whole world, but man has choice to believe. What did Jesus say about the Jewish people? He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to bring you to myself, but you wouldn't what? Come. Listen. There is no such thing as irresistible grace. Okay, has anybody got that? Am I going way too fast? We're almost through. I want you to see this last one. This last one, that's, by the way, that's Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven, where he says about Jerusalem, how I wanted to bring you to myself, but you wouldn't come. If it's irresistible, what happens? They have to come. They didn't. Okay, and then finally, perseverance of the saints. Now, what this means is this, that... 
In Reformed theology, when you're saved, you will certainly continue on in good works. And if you don't, it proves you are not saved. So let me ask you this question. If I think I got picked because I said I believed. And in this view, I said, I must have been one that he picked. He made me alive. I believed. He died for me. He brought me to himself. I will serve him for the rest of my life. So how do I know whether I'm saved or not? I have to do what? I have to be good. But how, do, how good? And for how long? And what if, I, what if I'm not good? What if I'm not growing? What, what happens if I don't live the way I think I should? What does that mean? Then maybe I will, I'll never... And see, these people don't believe you can lose your salvation. They believe that if you didn't live right, you never got it. You just didn't know it. You thought you had it. They even teach that you can think you're saved even your whole life and at the end, you fall away, and it just proves you never were saved. Now, let me show you. So that's why there is no assurance of salvation. In the Reformed theology, you can never... And Adam, can, he can tell more about this than me. He, he knows it. I mean, you can, you can say uh, in Reformed theology, I, I, I think I'm saved because right now I'm doing the best I can, but there's no way to know what I'm going to do five years from now or ten years from now. So you can never know if you're a Christian or not. You can't really know. I think in the book, in there in the book, the little there's the thing by R.C. Sproul in your book. Where's lesson twelve? Is that it? Okay, at the end of well, I don't see it. There's supposed to have been something in there, but there it is. Where did you get this? It's after. It's after what? Okay, it's after 14, but there's an article that, don't read it right now, we'll see it when we get to 14. There's an article by the, he's now passed away, but he was the leading authority on Reformed theology, and he actually said he didn't know for sure if he was saved. And he's, he taught in seminaries, he's a pastor, and yet he says he doesn't know for sure he's saved, because there's no way to know. Okay, so, the correct view is we can know salvation is not based on are secured by our works. It is by faith and is secured by the faithfulness of God. And these things, whoops, let me go back. These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. So I just want you to see this. And I, I think it's amazing. And now let me just tell you. If you look at the tulip, and the two things that I despise the most is limited atonement because it limits the work of Jesus Christ and perseverance of the saints because you can never know you're saved. Now, ultimately, in reform, ultimately the truth is this. The true God loves the whole world and he reaches out to everyone with the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment and he wants to bring them to himself with the message of salvation and whosoever will Believe has what? Eternal life. And the whole election that you see in the scripture is not for salvation, it's for service. Paul says God chose him from his mother's womb that he would what? Be an apostle to the Gentiles. It didn't, talk, it didn't say he chose him to be saved. It chose him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And when you look through the Bible, let me tell you, I, you, I tell you somebody's chosen. You want to know who somebody's chosen? His name was Pharaoh. And the Bible actually says that God chose Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. Was Pharaoh a believer? No, so he didn't choose Pharaoh as a believer. He chose Pharaoh to do ministry. And the ministry was to basically let God show his power through Pharaoh.